This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor of Education Next. Just arrived are results from exams administered to 13-year-old students, basically eighth graders, by the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which is otherwise known as the nation's report card or NAEP. The results are even more dismal than those who thought recovery from the pandemic had begun to take place. Academics and policymakers are struggling to figure out just what has happened, why it's happened, what can be done about it. So I'm very fortunate today to have Marty West with me on the Education Exchange. He is a member of the governing board responsible for the policies that shape the national assessment. He's also the academic dean of the Harvard Graduate School of Education, and I'm pleased to say the editor-in-chief of Education Next. So thanks, Marty, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Great to be here, Paul. Well, uh, thank you uh, for joining us. Uh, let's start with the basics. Uh, how much is student test performance down in math and reading for these eighth grade kids? Well, it's down pretty dramatically uh, in terms of NAEP scale score points, where we always start the conversation. Test scores fell by nine points in math and by four points in reading. Uh, and that's when we look at how students were doing in October to December of 2022. That's when the most recent assessments were administered as compared to when they were test, tested in that same window, October and December, October to December of 2019, that is on the eve of the pandemic. So nine points in math, uh, four points in reading. I think it's important to keep in mind, though, that these scores had already been falling uh, over the period leading up to the pandemic. So this long-term trend assessment, as we call it, of 13-year-olds had been previously administered in 2011. The scores reported in 2012, and the math scores had fallen by five points between 2012 and this uh, the 2020 assessment. And they had also fallen by three points in reading. So if we look at those changes overall since 2012, the score declines are, are pretty dramatic. And in math, they leave students back scoring at levels they had been in the early 1990s prior to really the rise of the education reform era. In reading, scores are now no different than they were when the test was first administered at the start of the NAEP program. Uh, back in 1971. So it's uh, definitely not encouraging news. Well, you see, it's a little bit of a long-term problem and a short-term problem. The short-term problem is COVID. And I think the rate of decline is a little more rapid in the last three years as, as compared to uh, the previous six, seven years. That's yeah. right. It's a larger decline in the past three years than we had in the eight years leading up it, uh, to it. But I still think it's important to uh, broaden the lens a little bit to say that there is a long-term problem in addition to the short-term problem. So we're, you know, to try to figure out what's going on here, maybe we should start picking up at a part as best we can. One of the limitations of the long-term trend version of the NAEP, there's two versions of the NAEP, as I know you uh, understand, Marty, but the but our listeners may not realize that, that there's actually two NAEPs going on at the same time. And the long-term trend, what's the difference between the long-term trend and the, and the main NAEP, which we call the other one? Well, the long-term trend is the original 
uh, and it's the assessment that was first developed in the early 1970s, uh, first administered in reading in 1971 and math in 1973, and it's been held exactly the same over that entire time period. So its great advantage is that it allows us to make comparisons over an entire half a century at this point. Uh, its great disadvantage is that although it was an innovative assessment, I'm sure in the days when it was first created, uh, it certainly is not uh, innovative in any sense of the word now. Um, and so we also have the main NAEP program. And the main NAEP program, the difference there is that the uh, frameworks for the test, the tests themselves, are regularly updated to be more aligned with what students are actually doing in schools as that changes over, over time. Uh, and the main name, another key difference is that that is now administered to um, representative samples of students, not just of the nation as a whole, but each state. And so it allows us to make comparisons across the states to see who's doing better and who's doing worse. And then a final difference between the two is that the long-term trend is always uh, the sample is defined based on age. We've been talking about 13-year-olds here. Last year, we re released results for nine-year-olds. Um, we also test 17-year-olds on occasion. The main NAEP is for fourth graders, eighth graders, and 12th graders. So there's a lot of little differences, but the, between the two of my, one of the big differences is uh, we, we don't have any state-by-state -state, uh, information here, so we can't say where the problem is, is the greatest. We do have group information, though, so we can look at whether or not uh, uh, African Americans or Hispanic Americans are doing worse than Asians and, and whites, which is a topic that many people are very concerned about. So what's the story there? Is it across the board or is it differential depending on your ethnic group? On this latest assessment, the results are, are down pretty much across the board when we look at different racial and ethnic groups. The long-term trend, because the sample is much smaller than the main NAEP, where we, again, we go out to each and every state, um, it, we don't have quite as much ability to speak with confidence about those group differences, but every indication we have in the data is that scores are, are down across the board. What we can do with a bit more precision in the long-term trend is talk about trends and performance at different levels of the achievement distribution. This is where um, the news in math in particular gets even more depressing. Um, uh, we saw scores fall by low achieving students, that is students at the 10th or the 25th percentile of the achievement distribution by twice as much in math as the scores fell for higher performing students, those at the 75th or the 90th percentile. And so there definitely has been a widening of achievement gaps um, it's just not one that is driven primarily by differences in racial and ethnic groups. It's differences between high performers and low performers, even within those groups. But I thought, and maybe I'm wrong here, but when I glanced at the data, I thought that their declines were less for Asians and Hispanic Americans. Is that possible? Or they, so there? they showed up as statistically significant for other groups, but not for those groups. But again, I think that had more to do with the size of the sample than whether those groups really, um, you know, uh, avoided any adverse consequences of the pandemic. Another thing that's in the... Uh, survey, and that's what one of the interesting things about the report that was issued by uh, the, the NAEP uh, staff, 
they say that uh, the number of days students uh, uh, are reported to be absent uh, increased substantially since the, uh, the last assessment. Uh, can you uh, go over that material? Yeah, so students do complete a survey when they are uh, taking the long-term trend NAEP. And one of the things we ask them about is their absenteeism from school. And in particular, we asked them uh, essentially how many days they had missed in the past month of school. And the share of students reporting that they were absent three or more days in the past month jumped to uh, more than a quarter of students. And that was a substantial increase over 2019 when they were last surveyed uh, and in 2012 before that. And you know we don't know exactly what's going on here. Again, this was all the way into the 21-22 school year. So it's uh, unlikely to be the requirements of uh, quarantining and, and the like, but may say something about students' attachment to school and habits that may have emerged over the pandemic period. Well, I've been hearing uh, from big cities that this is a massive problem, a growing uh, rate of absenteeism. And I sort of feel like, you know, you're going to get an underreporting on Nate because kids don't like to confess that they don't make it to school as often as they should. Uh, so the fact that you're seeing it on the Nate nationwide, an increase in absenteeism, my guess is it, it may be even even worse than this. Do you see this concentrated on any particular, is this a concentrated on the low performing students or, or? It is much higher among lower performing students than higher performing students. Um, and you know it, it, it is a, a startling number. We have, again, more than 25% of students saying they were absent three times or more in the past month. That is well on track to be, uh, chronically absent over the course of the year. I, you know, that would set you up to be on uh to be absent close to 30 days over the course of the year, uh, which by any definition of a reasonable standard of attendance would be a serious problem. So 25% of students uh nationally, we know that's going to be much higher in uh in large urban districts, as you mentioned, uh, and we see in these data that it's much higher among uh, low achieving students. And this is, we're talking about kids in eighth grade or seventh grade, you know, 13 year olds are, are not really the high school kids. And and I think this problem can be even larger for, for older kids. And, and now uh, some studies are saying, well, there's some kids we can't find, you know, they're, they are no longer in school, but they, uh, haven't, uh, they're not showing up in private schools. They're not reporting themselves being homeschooled although those are up, but still there's some just missing students out there. So um, do, are we uh, returning to an older period when we had very high dropout rates from our school system? Well, I think we're gonna see in the uh, coming few years what happens to high school graduation rates. We know that high school graduations actually ticked upward in the midst of the pandemic as a lot of requirements were uh, removed. Um, but I don't think we yet have a clear picture. And you're right that there are a lot of students that uh, have not re-enrolled in, in school formally. Uh, that's a different problem, problem from the absenteeism problem that we uh, were just discussing. Um, but I think it's, um, it's a problem worth paying attention to. And, you know, I don't know that it's just sort of, you know, you could blame the schools for all of this, but I think it's a broader uh, 
phenomenon. Uh, I, I thought this this uh, finding about reading for fun, which mm -hmm. is probably far beyond what's going on in schools and much more to do with what's going on in society. And 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 many fewer students are are saying that they're reading for, for fun. What, what's the specifics on that? So we see about a third of the 13-year-olds report on the survey that they rarely or never read for fun. And that's an increase from about 20% of students who gave that response in 2012. And there we've seen more of a steady increase from 2012 to 2019 to 2022, this most recent assessment. You know, I think this is a longer term trend in students' reading habits that probably has a lot to do with technology, as you said, things outside of the school, as well as what's going on within schools. Yeah, I feel like those games that kids can play on the uh, on the internet are just getting in the way of reading. Uh, and uh, so, so what's the solution to this, Marty? Can we just ban kids from from playing games on the internet? Yeah, I'm not sure it's games as much as it is uh, the various forms of social media that students are engaged with, and. Um, you know, I am very sympathetic to the idea of banning uh, those applications and perhaps even phones themselves during the school hours. I think it's going to be a tough sell for schools to be able to do much about that outside of the school hours. So to be honest, I don't know a great solution, um, except that I think educators have to find a way to um engage students in ways that compete with the the temptation of social media and probably what we need is is uh, public figures uh discouraging or you know encouraging parents to to discourage the use of uh the internet instead of uh instead of reading i don't know how you can do it but i think about the only thing you can do is jawbone you know just sort of emphasize the importance of of, of reading yeah, I think it's an area where social norms need to change and schools play a role in shaping social norms, but they're hardly the only factor. I mean, I think of campaigns like uh, the one to um, to convince people to quit smoking that have dramatically changed social norms over time. Uh, that's the type of thing we may need to uh, bring about as a society. But I haven't seen a single political figure in the upcoming presidential election make this their main campaign plank or even go so far as to mention it. Well, there's interest in Congress when they bring some of the big tech companies uh, before their committees. Uh, they like to talk about the issues of targeting very young users. Uh, but you're right, it hasn't been front and center, and I imagine there could be an opportunity for someone in that space. Of course, uh, Donald Trump uh, <laughs> rose to prominence largely on the back of his social media profile, uh, at least prominence as a political figure, and so it seems like he would be an unlikely champion of that crusade. I don't think it's one side of the political spectrum. I would say it's on both sides. Uh, both of them are using social media. They're both uh, they're both very, I don't see any Democrats out there uh, saying, you know, we got to do, yeah, spend more money on schools, but they're really not talking about really what's happening in our society in terms of uh, um, learning the basics that uh, people talked about that. I mean, uh, Bill Clinton talked about it. Uh, Lyndon Johnson talked about it. Uh, Jimmy Carter talked about it. 
this was never a, a Republican or a Democratic issue. It still isn't a Republican or Democratic issue. They've just both abandoned it. Um, so let's ask about algebra. A uh, percentage of 13-year-olds who say they are taking algebra is down from a third to about a quarter. So that you might blame on the schools. Why aren't kids taking algebra? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, so we were able to look at some geographic variation in that change. What's driving the decline in the uh, share of 13-year-olds who are already enrolled or had taken an algebra course? And this decline is concentrated entirely in the Western region of the country. Uh, and we know that the Western region of the country is dominated numerically by the state of California. And so while I don't have sort of direct data on California itself, I would imagine if we want to know the answer to that question, we wanna look at what's been going on there. And we do see in California that there has been a concerted effort associated in part with the implementation of the Common Core Standards um, to uh, delay the uh, course taking in algebra, driven in part by equity concerns about who uh, has that advantage when it's offered. Um, but that, I think, is responsible for the, for the change. Now, we do see in the NAEP data that students who report that they are taking or have taken an algebra course, they perform at higher levels on this, uh, this math assessment. Um, I think we have to be careful though to say that uh, the solution therefore isn't to get everyone to, into algebra without regard for their level of preparation for it. Um, the solution is to make sure that students are prepared so that they uh, can benefit from instruction in that subject uh, when they're around the age of 13. So these are results from the long-term trend. Uh, we talked about uh, the main NAEP. Uh, when are we gonna get some results from the main NAEP that will give us some more detailed information as to where things are happening? Yeah, so um, the next administration of the main NAEP will be given in early 2024, January to March of 2024, and those results will be published for the nation and for uh, each state in December of 2024. So after a period of the past 18 months where we've had a pretty steady stream of results coming out of the NAEP PET testing program, we now have a bit of a gap. Uh, and I think to some extent, that's a good thing. We sort of know where things are in the wake of the pandemic, and it's good that we'll have a little bit of time before the next assessment where we really do hope and would expect scores to be recovering. What was most striking about this latest round of data for me is that, again, these were tests that were administered in the 22-23 school year. So after school students had had a full year of school where virtually all of them were attending in person after schools had had summers on either end of that school year to try to engage in recovery efforts. And still we see declines relative to prior to the pandemic that are as large, if not larger in math than on any of the NAEP assessments that were administered in the wake of the pandemic. So certainly no signs that recovery efforts have been effective so far. 
And um, so I'm glad that we have a little bit of time now to uh, hopefully let those recovery efforts uh, kick in. I'm, you know, I'm not sure what we'll see. Uh, research I've seen from other testing programs shows that students have resumed learning, uh, but not at a pace that would uh, be any faster than they were learning prior to the pandemic. And, you know, that is what would be needed for students to recover. Um, but again, we'll be able to take another look at this late in 2024. So um, yes, we have to hope that we could make a recovery, but, uh, and a lot of money was spent uh, to try to prevent this from happening. And uh, a lot of programs were put into place. Why do you think they didn't, uh, you know, prevent the drop in, in performance, uh, despite the fact that we put in summer programs, we put in after school programs, we put in extra resources into the classroom. What do you, what do you think might, I mean, how do you interpret the fact that we made efforts and got so little out of it? It's certainly not a lack of dollars. As you note, schools have received more than $200 billion in federal pandemic aid over and above their normal allocations. You know, um, I look at some of the research by Tom Kane and his colleagues at the Center for Education Policy Research here at Harvard University, and they've looked at the scale of the uh, recovery efforts uh, that you just mentioned and find that they're well short of any reasonable expectation uh, as to what it would take to help students catch up from declines of the magnitude that they experienced in the first year uh, after the pandemic broke out. Um, but there've also been really challenging implementation issues. It's been hard to uh, hire sufficient staff. It's been hard to engage parents in efforts to expand instructional time, whether that be after school or over the summers. So I think there have been some real obstacles. I don't think funding is the main one, uh, but there have been some serious implementation challenges. And then I think as we look back at the 2021-22 uh, school year, yes, most, almost all schools were back fully in person, but it was still, I think, a fairly compromised experience with masking requirements in place in many settings. And then the constant churn created by exposures to the virus and uh, the need to stay at home, the need for quarantines to be in place. And so I think what this really tells us is, yes, the recovery efforts to date haven't been uh, enough given the challenges that schools were facing. But one way to think about it is the recovery period really didn't start until the 22-23 school year at the start of which these latest tests were administered. Well, and then let's take the long look. You know, this has been a decline that's you know, been going over the past decade. So this is sort of a, a decade long event or more. And then uh, it may have become more severe during the crisis, but it isn't sort of like it's brand new with the crisis. So anyway, and this is after we saw spectacular increases in math performance uh, prior to uh, to this uh, contemporary period and um, and some reading gains, but all those reading gains have now been lost. Uh, so, um, what do you? What's going on? What's in the larger world? Why have? Why did we see a country which had responded 
to the National Commission on Educational Excellence and actually did improve on a slowly, not as fast as we all wanted it to, but really it looked like it was moving ahead. Now we, we don't see that. So what happened? Well, so I think the clear takeaway is that we can't just go back to normal, uh, that progress prior to the pandemic had already stalled in the case of some assessments like this 13-year-old assessment had reversed and, and slipped substantially from 2012, which in retrospect was its peak, at least uh, to date. As for what is responsible, you know, I think people point to a variety of competing factors, both inside and outside of schools. Some people uh, point to changes in school spending, which fell briefly in the wake of the financial crisis and, you know, it hasn't uh, recovered to its prior trajectory. Um, but I think as I look at it, the most significant change was really the uh, rollback of the test-based accountability movement in the early 2010s, first with the Obama administration's ESEA waiver program, which provided states flexibility from the requirements of No Child Left Behind, and then with the Every Student Succeeds Act in 2015, which gave states a lot more control over the design of accountability systems. And while I think that was the only politically feasible way to salvage at least some semblance of an accountability system, uh, you know, I think as we look back at the period leading up to the early 2010s, we have a lot of good evidence that the adoption of those systems was responsible for some of the gains that you mentioned. So I think, you know, that needs to be part of the story as well. Well, let me throw out one thing in, in, as a final thought, and that is, well, maybe we shouldn't care so much. Maybe the, it's not how much you know in math and reading anymore. We now have uh, computer programs that can, can write for us. Uh, it's, it's basically how you can cooperate with other people, how you can, uh, you know, just uh, uh, the social skills are more important than the academic skills. And, and maybe the schools are doing one of the things they've always done, which is to socialize kids into uh, working together. So can we take that as a, sort of an optimistic look? We can hope, uh, but I'll say people have been, I think, hoping that and pointing to changes in society that may make academic knowledge and skills less important for some time. And we've certainly seen no evidence to date that scores on assessments like the National Assessment of Educational Progress have become less important for either students' own individual success in the labor market or the economic growth of states or indeed nations. And so, you know, again, I just mentioned some research by Tom Kane. I'll point to a second study uh, that he's released in the past year, looking at uh, the states that really demonstrated a lot of progress on the main NAEP test in the 1990s and the aughts. Um, and those states really did see big improvements in outcomes in the labor market in um uh, criminal justice outcomes, for example, uh, for students who experience those benefits. And so it may be the case that AI and other technologies are going to disrupt that relationship, but um, that's a hope rather than something that we can point to evidence uh, for at this point. 
Well, thank you, Marty, for uh, sharing uh, those insights uh, with our listeners on the Education Exchange. It's been my pleasure. I have been speaking with Martin West, a member of the National Governing Board responsible for the administration of the National Assessment. He is also the Academic Dean at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. A new Education Exchange podcast is released on the Education Exchange website on Monday each week at noon Eastern time.